Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. Uh, this week we are discussing a quite dramatic and controversial week of action in the Copa Libertadores. Joining me to discuss that as ever are Simon and Austin. So let's see how they are doing. Austin, I'll come to you first. Um, how can I put it? Well, I always had my suspicions, but last night confirmed it. That you really are a results over performance man, aren't you? Yeah, man. I'd rather be in the next round than out. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And apart from that, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. It's good to be on the show. Obviously, a, a lot has happened this week in the world of South American football. So quite happy that we have the opportunity to kind of break it down and hopefully be able to give some context to it. And also, Simon, um, well, I, I can't believe this, to be honest, but I'm actually, for the very first time, quite disappointed in you after your pun fest during this week <laughs> on Twitter. Um, <laughs> how's it going in the streets of yeah. Spain? The streets. I'm actually in my, in my grounds, the sprawl, sprawling grounds of Shay Simon. Uh, no, I'm good. I'm good. Out here, a bit of alfresco podding. Uh, glossing over that, you know, we're a team, you know, it was a little almigon, you know, yeah, teamwork, teamwork makes the dream work. Woo, go team. More, 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 on, more on that later. As I was saying, there's an infinite amount to discuss this week, really. Um, not quite sure how long this pod will be, but, um, you know, it's, it's probably going to be around the 90 minute mark appropriately for a football pod. Uh, but let's start by addressing possibly... That's difficult to say if it was the most controversial game, but it probably was the most controversial game of the week, and that was Santos against Independiente, which both matches on the field finished nil-nil, but Independiente advanced three-nil on aggregate. To start off by explaining this topic for for those that don't know, first need to say basically since the World Cup finished. South American football has basically been dominated by administration issues of its governing body and it, and it, and its clubs. Um, so, first in the Copa Sudamericana, we had Tomuco of Chile beating San Lorenzo 3-1 on aggregate. They won 2-1 in Argentina and 1-0 home. Um, so, on the pitch, they won both matches. But between the legs, it was announced that their away win was actually a 3-0 defeat. And so, as a player they brought on, Jonathan Requena, um, had actually been registered to his previous club, Defensa Ejusticia, for the competition. Um, he didn't actually play a minute for them. So, <laughs> for, for that club that he was registered to, another Argentinian club. So basically, Tomoko's argument was that, you know, he really wasn't cup-tied in, 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 in the true sense of the word. But, uh, and, and the issue didn't show up on this Commable system, which was installed in 2016, um, called Comet. But yeah, from what I understand, San Lorenzo were tipped off uh, by Defensa y Ticia. Um, and, and then just a couple of weeks later, Santos get a valuable nil-nil draw away to Independiente. This time, the Argentines um, give notice within 24 hours that Santos had fielded Carlos Sanchez, who was contracted to River Plate um, three years ago. And, um, and he still hadn't completed the free match suspension given to him um, at that time. And it was for... 
kind of striking out at a ball boy, if I, if, if I recall correctly. I, th- I think in 2016, Commonwealth Ball halved all their suspensions. Um, so that suspension was basically down to one match. Uh, but he didn't serve it. So uh, technically, even though Santos had got this screenshot of, of again, the Comet system clearing him to play... Uh, uh, but that wasn't good enough for Commonwealth, and uh, and and eventually they gave Independiente the three 0 win. Now, I think the big issue here for for me, Commonwealth had to be consistent with that decision because you know there's been previous examples of this when the eligibility of a player um, has has been in question, the opposition. The opposing team, the, or the the team appealing the decision, has been given the three 0 win. We saw this in World Cup qualifying with uh, with Chile um, um, and Peru appealing the case of a Bolivian player um, who was actually Paraguayan, um, and uh, and we also had an incident in last year's Copa Libertadores with uh, Chapecoense and and Lanús. And together with this Tomulco case, I, I don't think Commonwealth had anywhere to go with this but to give Independiente the, the 3-0 win. Now, what baffles me is the timing of the decision. Because they made it, in the end, of the day of the game. When, for me, it seemed pretty much cut and dried that they should, they should have announced it days before. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what their thinking was behind that decision. I don't know if uh, Austin or Simon have any theories on that. But yeah, just nine hours before kickoff, I think it was. And that left Santos, obviously, with very little time to prepare tactically for the match, which I personally think is, is, the, is kind of the biggest scandal around this incident, and is, is this timing of the decision. What unfolded next, I'll give myself a break and uh, I'll leave it to Austin to explain. And Adam, if not for the administrative errors of Santos and of Conable and of everybody else, this tie between Santos and Independiente just would have been a pair of nil-nil draws that went straight to penalties, probably largely forgotten in the history of the Copa Libertadores. But here we are with an unserved suspension for Carlos Sanchez, who then is allowed to play in the second leg because Conable apparently deemed that the 3-0 loss that Santos then had to take against Independiente was enough. So Sanchez ended up playing in the second leg for Santos after a first leg, which was quite possibly one of the dullest Libertadores matches we've seen this year. Santos did not register a shot, but the emotion was high for the second leg at the pack game, Boo. As you said, the decision came down the day of the match. So Santos find out, you know, roughly six hours before they take the pitch that now instead of playing with a nil-nil, only needing to win by one goal to advance, they're now in a situation where they need to put three past Independiente to have any hope in this tie. That would have sent it to penalties. And this match had a lot of atmosphere. It had a lot of energy. And right away, I thought Santos came out of the gate really strongly. And they kind of played as though they would have, as they, as how they would have needed had they been able to kind of turn this around, um, an early save one-on-one from Campania for Independiente, I think, was a big turning point in this match. 
Had Santos taken that chance and scored early, I think this could have gone a lot differently. It didn't for them. They huffed and they puffed and they had a couple of chances, but that was their one real clear-cut chance. Then right on halftime, Independiente actually won themselves a penalty, and they could have put the tie completely to bed, but Maxi Meza, the Argentine international, had his penalty saved by Vanderlei. So it went to halftime nil-nil. At that point, prevailing knowledge would have said that, all right, this is probably going to be an Independiente advancement. But Santos pulled out all of the stops. Kuka kept his team on the pitch at halftime to try to feed off the energy from the crowd who continued to sing all the way through the halftime break. Santos, again, in the second half, kind of got themselves into good positions but couldn't really finish. And this match looked as though it was going to peter out. But then, unfortunately... As was kind of expected with this match, unless Santos were able to turn it over, it felt like it was going to boil towards a tipping point. And with about 80 minutes played, that is what happened. The Santos fans started to get very frustrated, upset with Conmol for the decision, upset a little bit with their squad for not being able to turn around, upset with Independiente for winning this, as they said, in the courtroom and not on the pitch. And so a group of the Santos Ultras tried to storm the pitch through one of the fences at the Pacaembu, one of the oldest stadiums in Brazil. Uh, the police did a fairly good job of keeping them off the pitch, but that obviously led to violence between the fans and the military police who were there, obviously to protect the safety of the players and, and of the fans themselves. A couple of fans did get on the pitch. The referee made a pretty quick decision that uh, Bascunyan, the Chilean referee, made a fairly quick decision that, you know what, this is it's not going to happen. Santos aren't going to turn this around by three. This is an absolute mess. And he took the players off the pitch just a couple of minutes after the incident started. So this match finished nil-nil. But had Santos been in a situation where, you know, they had turned this around, I don't think that would have happened. But again, Independiente probably could have gotten this ruled as another 3-0 win for them. But I think they're just going to leave that be, take the 3-0 for the tie and move on to the quarterfinals. The prevailing feeling, I think, around Santos was actually pretty interesting because I think you got different uh, positions on it. Uh, Rodrigo, one of the youngsters for Santos who signed for Real Madrid and will be moving there once he turns 18, was very critical of Conable, saying that Conable, you know, had done Santos wrong. I think there's arguments to be made on both sides. I think Santos probably should have been cleaner in their handling of the situation. Uh, but it also feels like they maybe did everything that they could. I don't know. It, it's really confusing. Uh, and then Kuka, the, the manager for Santos, got involved in, in a skirmish between a, mili- uh, uh, a policeman and a Santos fan uh, in trying to kind of, you know, diffuse the tension that was present on the pitch. After the match, Kuka himself, the Santos manager, who, of course, won the Brazilian down with Palmeiras a few years back, was very critical of Santos as a club and as, as you know, the director saying that this was an unforced error. We should have been able to avoid this. Uh, the I club like pres- that. I like that part because uh, I, I think a lot of some uh, quite a few of these issues which spring come from uh, lack of res- lack of responsibility. Yeah, somebody's got to take the responsibility for this decision. I, th- I think it's easy to just blame Conable um, in this situation. Yeah, as a club, you've got to take collective responsibility for not for not seeing the issue through. In my opinion. Yeah, and and reports out of Santos have said that the person who is responsible for 
you know, making sure that the players are eligible has been fired. The Santos club president uh, kind of hit back at Kuka saying that this wasn't Santos's issue. It's a bit of a mess. It, it's been a season for Santos as a whole. I think it should be noted at this point. You know, they were around the relegation zone. They brought in Kuka. This was kind of their chance to have one more run at it, and they weren't able to do that. It's just, it's so complicated with a mess on so many sides. But I agree with you, Adam. It was nice to see somebody stand up and say, no, we have a part to play in all of this and, and the club should take some blame here too. That's a, that's a bit of a disgrace if it's true that they'll actually sack someone for it when the club are outwardly saying to the media they feel, you know, it's a disgrace and hard done by. It can't be both things. You either back the person who made the mistake, but what they don't see as a mistake ultimately, if, if, if they're going this far, you know, to... To try and get the decision overturned seems a little bit uh, hypocritical. That to me, to to sack somebody for something where you're saying in public you think is a this, uh, the decision is a disgrace anyway. Um, yeah. it can't be both things, can it? You either no, stick it together. Can't. You either stick together as a club and just say, look, you know, this is a total disgrace, or or you accept total responsibility and uh, say, you know, we deserve whatever punishment we get. And that's the the interesting part of all of this, I think, is that you are seeing a bunch of different fronts from Santos. And, and it's it kind of speaks to the criticism that this club has faced from their fans. Uh, the current president, it does not appear, will be in that position f- for much longer. Um, we'll see how long Kuka lasts. Santos have kind of hit a bit of a run of form to get themselves out of the relegation zone domestically. But this has, has been a very unsuccessful season. There's no question about that. As for Independiente, um, I didn't think they were brilliant in either of these ta- in either of these matches. Uh, a quick word on them as we move forward, uh, but they continue to kind of get the job done under Holan in cup competitions. The defending Sulamericana champions, their performance in the second leg, I think, was largely dictated by the fact that they had a three nil advantage, and that prevented them from from wanting to be too risky going forward. Um, I think they're a very dangerous side in this competition. This Independiente side, I think they're one to watch in this competition. And there may be a bit of a dark horse going forward because they don't have quite the name talent that you see in some of the other favorites. But it would not surprise me to see them lifting the Libertadores trophy. Yeah, I, 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 I felt that they deserved they deserved it over the two games. You know, p- purely the football played on the pitch. I, I thought they were better of the two sides. Um, Simon, do you have... Any any thoughts on on either the game or the or the decisions from Commonwealth? Yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of Commonwealth and the club, I think a slight lack of professionalism all round. Um, I can completely understand both sides. Well, I can completely understand Santos's agree, uh, grievances. Um, obviously, if there's a system you want it updated. <laughs> He's going to enforce it. So I understand the frustrations, but again, you know. There's 11 players going onto the pitch. It's, it's not a huge ask to make sure that you, you know if they're suspended or not. I mean, of all the preparation you see clubs do in terms of travel, in terms of everything to get to, to a game, and to repeatedly see in South America that the clubs haven't checked if their players they're picking are eligible, is, you know, that's a, a, short, a short-sighted approach, if anything. So I, can, I think there's a lack of professionalism all around, to be honest. Um, this really needs to be sorted out moving forward from both the club's perspective and Commonwealth. In terms of the game, yeah, I think I'd agree with both you guys. I think Santos have quality, but so often we saw players isolated and not really a great uh, amount of collective play to kind of create those openings. 
Um, so, you know, they, this could have been an interesting tie, even with the 3-0. But obviously, you go down to the pitch and you've woken up in the morning thinking you're just going to nick a 1-0 and then you have to uh, throw everything to get a 3-0. It does really change the, 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 the way you prepare and very tricky for Santos in that situation. Yeah, and I think maybe the, the only sort of last thing we need to touch on here is, is that crowd trouble. Because I did see that some people, even the, even some of the Brazilian media, seem to sort of excuse the behaviour of the Santos fans and say, you know, well, you know, this is Commodore's fault. But, you know, I'm very critical of the timing of Commodore's decision. But whatever you think of it, it can't excuse that kind of behaviour, can it? No, it can't. But I think, as we've kind of touched on, there's fault to be had for all of the parties involved in this case. The behavior of the Santos fans is absolutely inexcusable, but also Conable helped create that sort of situation by their delay in announcing this and by kind of operating behind the scenes in the dark for most of this. And then Santos fans, and as we'll touch on in a second, found themselves a bit hard done by because of what they saw as preferential treatment to River Plate in Argentina, who also fielded a player who was ineligible and hadn't served his suspension. This one dating back to 2013 in Bruno Zuccolini. But then no punishment was handed out to River Plate, only that the player then had to serve the suspension going forward simply because nobody uh, appealed in the proper amount of time. So there's just fault to be had on all cases. I think Santos's fans are absolutely at fault. I think the club is at fault. And I think Conwell will have a role to play here. Um, not, the best, not the best showing that the Libertadores could have given in this situation. I think that's completely fair to say. And I think, I mean, obviously, you know, there's frustrations in both. But if you're a 40-year-old man going to a football match for your kids, like, don't spit and fight policemen because you're upset. Like, they're dicks. Like, you can, you can completely understand the frustrations, but if, if you're going to go out to a public event and, you know, start beating up police officers because you're frustrated about a log- uh, logistical and uh, bureaucratic decisions, like, no, just don't do that. <laughs> so, yes, I understand the frustrations. And obviously, the, the way that Commonwealth have handled the situation has stoked some of these frustrations. But when it comes down to it, you know, you, you're a adult a public event and you're fighting with police officers because you're annoyed come on grow up so i think there's no excuse in it obviously there's lots of reasons why it happened and lots of things that could have maybe prevented some of the frustrations and the situation but when it comes down to it it's people being stupid indeed indeed um let's move on to another match on tuesday night and that was between gremio and estudiantes uh it finished 2-1 to Gremio, the home side, which was 3-3 on aggregate. It went to penalties after a dramatic start and a dramatic end to the match. Um, but, yeah, in the end, Gremio triumphed, the, the Copa Libertadores holders, of course. But I think we're all agreed here, no, Austin, that the Estudiantes really must be kicking themselves. Yes, I think Gremio deserved to go through, but Estudiantes absolutely could have gone through. And Tuesday night was such an interesting case study because you had the juxtaposition of the scenes between Santos and Independiente. Kind of everything that we dislike about South American football, the bureaucratic issues, you know, the organization issues, the things that should just be better. But then you had a fascinatingly enthralling match between Gremio and Estudiantes played 
at a packed stadium with tremendous drama where everything went as though it should have. And I think that is the Libertadores kind of encapsulated in one night. You have all of that involved. This was a fantastically fun match. We said going in that Walter Kahneman's away goal in the first leg was massive for Gremio, and that proved true. They scored early, six minutes in. Everton put Gremio on top. A really nicely worked team goal. For my money, Gremio are one of the best overall composed teams in Brazil. They may not have any of the best individual players, but just the amount of talent that they can put on the pitch is really impressive. And so six minutes gone, Everton scored for Gremio, and you're thinking, all right, this is going to be a route. They're going to put another couple past Estudiantes. One nil would have been enough to see them through. They'll put a couple past. This title will be gone. But Estudiantes hit back right away, and Gremio's defense, we've praised, I've praised at least, all throughout this competition. Pedro Jeromel, Walter Kahneman, Brazilian and Argentine international, respectively. Just an absolute miscue. Jeromel plays the ball straight to the Estudiantes attacker, Rodriguez. He equalizes in all before 10 minutes have played. It's 1-1. And now Gremio have to go out and get another goal just to force penalties. They have to score twice in order to advance. Pretty much from that 10-minute mark, it was one-way traffic. Gremio had a lot of the ball. They had a lot of the chances. But they weren't really able to finish things off. And it went into added time at the end of the 90. And Gremio had the ball box high on their near side, not in a great position. And Estudiantes gave away a needless, needless free kick. And you cannot, absolutely cannot give away needless set pieces in extra time against a team that's as good as Gremio is. They ran a really nice set piece routine. Allison, their midfielder, kind of cut across all of the Estudiantes defenders, got in at the near post and flicked it in. Boom, it's 2-1. It heads to penalties. And I thought Gremio deserve a lot of credit for the penalties that they've taken. This is a team that in Luan, one of the best players on the continent, has a really poor penalty taker. And I think there would have been a lot of pressure for him to come up and take a penalty, you know, to kind of prove himself. But Hinato Gaucho has a lot of control over this side. He didn't let Luan take any of the five penalties. And the five who took, Michael, Everton, Jael, Alisson, and Andre, all took very solid penalties. I think the only one that wasn't taken well went the opposite way of Andujar, the Estudiantes keeper. Estudiantes took three pretty good penalties themselves, but unfortunately for them, Campi, their defender, blasted it over the crossbar, not even on target. And that's the difference. The defending Libertadores champions are in the quarterfinals, and Estudiantes are kicking themselves as they head home because this was a tie that they absolutely could have and maybe even should have won. Yeah, definitely. Uh, for me, but it was surprisingly close because I think when the draw was made, I, I thought this would be more comfortable for Gremio than it was. But, yeah, in the end, they... They needed penalties to overcome the Argentines, and uh, and ju- just uh, just thinking on it now, I, I don't think we've had a back-to-back winner in the Libertadores since uh, Boca Juniors at, at, at the turn of the millennium when they won it in two thousand and two thousand and one. So, yeah. Gremio looking for back-to-back titles, which would be uh, a huge achievement. They're in the quarterfinals now. Um, uh, let's see if they can make it any further. Also on Tuesday night, our very own Simon Edwards was present at Atletico Nacional 1, Atletico Tucumán, Neil. It was finished 2-1 to the to the underdogs, the, the Argentines on aggregate. Um, after that 2-0, that solid 2-0 win, they, they got in Tucumán a, a few weeks ago. Um, Simon, when National went 1-0 up early on in this, I have to admit, I, I kind of thought that they would complete the job. Um, 
just, you know, I just, I just got the VR, you know, but, but with that home crowd, that that, you know, it might become too overwhelming for for Tuchelman in the end. But no, and with their inexperience as well in continental competitions. But no, fair play to the Argentines because you know that's kind of become that side you nearly always get in the Libertadores each year. You know, an underdog which you should never write off. Um, and they dug in and they held out for an historic 2-1 win on aggregate, like I say. so um, Which I think was deserved, given how poor the Colombians were in the first leg. How did how did you see it from your Colombian perspective? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, it was great to see all the Tucumán fans at the stadium, drinking with the Nacional fans. There was a show of respect after the game for, for the Nacional, for the Tucumán fans. So that was nice to see, especially in light of some of the less savoury uh, fan actions this week um but very very impressive on that regard and that's now really got behind the team they they went to the team stadium the night before to give them a nice uh, rendition of some of the songs and make it clear that they're behind them for this game uh there's a lot of discontent and actually the national manager almiron has now left uh the club um he brought in a lot of argentine players and, and kind of let some of the fan favorites go risky decision and ultimately it hasn't really paid off. Um, in this game, obviously, Nacional went took the lead very early, 10, 15 minutes gone. Uh, Omar Duarte cut, uh, cutting inside and getting onto a, a low cross from, I think, Vladimir Hernandez on the right wing. And it was looking good. Um, plenty of chances were well in the first half. While there's huge respect for Tucumán for, for getting the result and, and being far superior to Nacional in the first leg, they're not that good. <laughs> so, again respected them for doing it but they weren't defending particularly well and really I think it was Nacional's wastefulness and a lack of creativity that really cost them in this game because having got that first goal then you have 18 minutes to get one more um, against the Tucumán side that while were they were organised defensively they weren't it wasn't just the classic South American Copa Libertadores defensive everyone behind the ball you know uh, really all organised, packed midfield. They still had two players forward. They left themselves fairly open. There was a lot of space to work with, particularly for the wings for Nacional. Um, the Tucumán defence was very compact. The four was very tight together. So there was always space to find the Nacional wingers. And they had a free run at the fullback and they had the pace to beat the fullback over and over again. But they just couldn't They couldn't find that decisive pass. Another problem, um, during the during the game, Austin mentioned that his, his dad wasn't impressed by uh, Felipe Aguila in defence and unfortunately three or four of the Nationals best chances fell to the centre-back and he completely messed them up one you know was a half volley completely completely skied it another header which he contact, you know, had good contact on well saved by the goalkeeper and then one where it came to in the box and he sliced it completely missed the ball so there were clear chances for, for Nacional but the problem is they got rid of Magnelli Torres, who, again, doesn't have the energy to cover a lot of ground, can be seen as a luxury player at times. But he's incredibly creative, incredibly smart, really good on the ball. And that's what Nacional needed this, for this game. The Tucumán defence, again, was, was, was deep. There was space. So often you could see them just a switch of play or an incisive pass and Nacional were in because they had the beating for pace of Tucumán every single time. But they just couldn't, they couldn't do it. And, you know, Aldo Leo Ramirez and uh, Castigliani in the middle just didn't have that creativity. And even though they were the more creative players for Nacional, they got, they got hooked with 20 minutes to go and Nacional fizzled out at the end. So very disappointing. A huge, huge positive for Nacional is Camposano, who's in the Colombia team. He is incredibly good. 
just head and shoulders above everyone else. Young midfielder, played in the second division until quite recently. And uh, he was just the the brains and the heart of this national team, dropping deep to get the ball from the centre-backs, as well as Alexis Enriquez, who was dropped for national, despite, you know, he's, he's slow. He, he turns like a boat, <laughs> um, a big boat. <laughs> but uh, on the ball, he's by far national's best passer. And when the centre-back is the only guy making, you know, penetrative passes, you're, you're in trouble. So really, really disappointed. Dado Moreno was very static, never really posed a threat. They found the wingers repeatedly with no real end product. So, again, another day... One of these chances goes in. They had chances. They often came from crosses or it was bundled into the box. Also, uh, Gustavo Torres was one-on-one with the goalkeeper and thought he heard a whistle and stopped and jogged the other way while the ball was still in play, which was, you know, embarrassing. And he's now completely ruined his reputation for Nacional with a silly mistake. And I think that kind of sums up Nacional's night. They were in a position to win this game. Tucumán aren't very good. Spirited but limited. And Nacional just couldn't find the penetrative passes and, and the Argentine didn't really bring anything to the side. So disappointing. But uh, yeah, you know, the end of the Almiron era and it was underwhelming, I think. Just a quick word. Simon's completely correct in saying that Tucumán are very limited and, and on talent probably didn't deserve to win this tie. But what an incredible story they are. They played the Copa Libertadores for the very first time last year. They gave us all that exciting night in, in, in Ecuador when they were driving to the stadium and had to play in the Argentina under 20 kits. Made the group stage last year, which was a huge success. And now they find themselves in the quarterfinals of the biggest competition on the continent with a chance to dethrone the defending champions. This is a limited side, but a massive tip of the cap to them for what they've been able to do as a club. Their atmosphere, every single Libertadores match that we've seen played at that stadium has been fantastic. And you know it's going to be incredible for the first leg against Gremio. I I think they'll be heavy underdogs in that tie as well, but they deserve massive, massive credit for what they've been able to do as a club. Yeah, uh, I I totally agree. Um, And just a quick one on Atletico Nacional, because I saw them in their very first uh, Libertadores game this year, um, away to Colo Colo here in in Santiago, and I came away from that game, as you both know, quite depressed at the standard of football I saw in the game. Um, from both sides, I, 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 I thought it was a very poor game of football overall, and uh, and I think I said on the pod or I put in a tweet that you know I was very disappointed that Colo Colo couldn't beat uh, a side like Atletico Nacional at home, and uh, and I got a bit of criticism for that from uh, some Colombians uh, who seemed to think that Atletico Nacional were a lot better than uh, I, I was saying, but, you know, they never convinced me in, in this competition and, uh, and I wasn't really that surprised by this, by this result in, in the end. Let's move on to discuss River Plate against uh, Racing. Uh, Austin, you've already touched on, you know, one of the controversies around this game. The 3-0 scoreline is a scoreline that, that Racing had hoped to take into the away leg, given the whole issue surrounding the river midfielders of Bellini. It, it, in the end, it was pretty easy for, for, for River Plate. Um, 3-0 win, they keep up their amazing defensive record, um, certainly since Armani took the gloves there um, at, at the Argentine Giants. And yeah, 
Racing just one of those sides that again we often get in Libertadores. You always get that team which starts off, you know, like a like a train, but they've come to a juddering halt in in the end, haven't they? They have, and this is now 17 clean sheets in the last 19 matches for River Plate, which is just an absurd defensive record. Armani has has been as expected in goal for them. And worth noting that one of those games where they did not keep a clean sheet was a Copa Argentina match that they won 3-1, and they conceded a goal in the 88th minute. So in all, in all intents and purposes, it was a clean sheet. But yeah, the Zuccolini case hung over this match, and Connable's defense was that nobody appealed that he was supposedly suspended, and he had picked up a red card when playing in 2013 in a continental competition, never served that suspension because he moved overseas, came back to River, slotted right into the squad, and played all six group stage matches in the first leg before anybody realized, hey, wait, he should should have uh, served a suspension at some point. Conable said, okay, he has to serve the suspension going forward, but since nobody appealed, there's no punishment to River. That was obviously a controversial decision. It feels like it might be the right one, but man, it's difficult because it's it, uh, part of the reason and the justification was that River wrote to Conable at the start of the year asking, do we have any players who are suspended that need to serve their suspension? This was with Zuccolini in the fold. And they had a signed and sealed letter from Conable saying, no, you do not have any suspensions. So at the end of the day, Conable is forced to take the blame for this one rather than their system or another club. And so that's why I think this is the right decision, even if it does feel that little bit funny. As for the match itself, you know, they were coming off the nil-nil in the first leg. Uh, Rossing were actually in a decent position here because a score draw would have sent them through on away goals. Rivers scored very early on in this match. They hadn't scored in four. They'd played four straight nil-nil draws coming in. That led me to believe that this was heading to penalties. But Lucas Prato, the big man, the big money man, I guess you could say, for Rivers, scored early 11 minutes in. That put them up 1-0, but I thought Rossing were still in with a pretty decent chance after that. But then it all went wrong for them on 28 minutes. One of the worst set-piece routines I have ever seen in all of my years watching football. River literally passed it straight to Ezekiel Palacios. They were box high on their own side. The set-piece went straight to Palacios for River. and He took it the other way, started the counterattack, and then in a fantastic show of all of his abilities... Quick plug for the Scouting Spotlight podcast on him that'll be coming out in a few weeks' time. Went right to the other end and finished it off for River after some good play from Juan Fernando Quintero. Brilliant, as always, when he gets the start. That made it 2-0, and that pretty much put the tie to bed. If there was any doubt left, Rafael Santos Borre scored late for River Plate to finish things off. Rossing, I didn't think were that bad, but made some really critical mistakes in this match. And then it wouldn't be a multi-goal elimination in the Libertadores without a couple of sending offs. And it was Ricardo Centurion, which is is not terribly surprising. He and Enzo Perez for River Plate both got sent off. uh, And then Rossing actually had another man sent off down the stretch. So this finished 10 on nine. River are through. They haven't looked that impressive as of late, but this was a fairly impressive and clinical performance from them. And I think River Independiente has all the makings of a really, really good tie. Yeah, as you mentioned, there were some unsavory scenes at the end there with uh, Ricky Centurion. Unhappy at Enzo Perez goading him, which is which is kind of weird, no? Given Centurion certainly enjoyed giving it out to uh, Universidad de Chile players. 
in that 1-0 win. They had over him in the group stage. Um, he got a little player sent off as well in, in that one with, it, with his antics. So it really was a... I, I quite enjoyed seeing him uh, frustrated, annoyed and... Uh, and uh, having to do a walk of shame after a 3 0 defeat because uh, it's clear, although he, he's happy to give it out, he can't take it back. Oh man, he did not take a walk of shame. He took a walk of pride and made a four finger signal to the River Plate fans from the time when his Boca Juniors sides put four past River at El Monumental. So it was anything but a walk of shame for Ricky Centurion. I don't think he knows what a walk of shame is, and I'm pretty sure he'll never take one in his career. Uh, fair enough. But that's Ricky Centurion for you, and you wouldn't have expected anything else. Sticking with the theme on Wednesday night, we've got a side that will prevent this from becoming the Copa Brasileño Argentino as it comes down the stretch, and that is Chile's Colo Colo, who off the back of their 1-0 home win against Corinthians, went to the Atlanta Corinthians in Sao Paulo. They were defeated 2-1 on the night, but advanced from the tie on away goals. And perhaps making the pain even worse for Corinthians, the best player on the pitch on Wednesday for Colo Colo was ex-Palmatis man Jorge Valdivia. Adam, it was great for me to see Valdivia play well. I'm sure it was great for you to see Valdivia played well. And this was a deserved advancement for Colo Colo on the run of play over the two legs. Yeah, indeed. You mentioned Valdivia there, who got booed and abused on his return to the pitch of, uh, of Palmeiras' rivals, with uh, Valdivia obviously being a Palmeiras legend. Um, and Valdivia, of course, faces Palmeiras in the next round, which is um, a fantastic narrative for this competition. But yeah, it, it made me laugh, because El Mago, as he's uh, known here, the magician, uh, walked off the pitch screaming about having giant eggs and heart. And I think they're, uh, they need more of that in the, in the quarterfinals. Um, and I'm sure it's one he's he's looking forward to, as everybody here is in Chile, really, apart from probably uh, maybe Universidad de Chile and Universidad Católica fans. Most of the people here in Chile would like to see Colo Colo go all the way, I think, uh, as it would be you know great for great for Chilean football. I think over the two legs, this was a fully deserved triumph for Colo Colo, who returned to the quarter-final stage of this competition for the first time since 1997. So, and, and in that year, I should add, uh, they ended up facing Cruzeiro in the semi-finals, and that is a possible semi-final this, this time around. Uh, and Colo Colo, if they did get that far, would certainly be hoping for better than a defeat on penalties, which, which is what they got in '97. Um, so yeah, it, there's a few interesting narratives as the as also the year that they won it in '91, they beat Boca Juniors in the semi-final that year, and that's obviously their other possible opponent if they if they do get past Palmeiras, which you know they they will start that game as underdogs. Uh, more on Palmeiras later. Um, as you know, quickly. From my perspective on, on Corinthians, I felt that they offered very little over both legs. Uh, even at home this week, they they never really looked like scoring from open play to me. You know, they mainly looked dangerous from set pieces, and that's where their second goal came from, and their first goal was a penalty, of course. 
it was a very experienced performance from Colo Colo. You know, they were fortunate that they could play their strongest side, even though manager Hector Tapia uh, was suspended. So he had to watch from the stands and couldn't communicate with his assistant on the bench, who was in charge for this game, Gualberto Jara. Um, he's he's somebody that some say on Twitter he that he looks like Jim's dad from American Pie. But yeah, Colo Colo found themselves in a couple of uh, sticky situations in this game, and the first of which was the penalty, um, which was really dumb from Claudio Bowser to give away, just stuck an arm out when really there was there was no need to. It was an obvious penalty call. I think the frustrating thing from the Chileans' perspective or the Colo Colo perspective was that they, you know, they felt that they had penalties turned down in the first leg, which should have been given as well. So, but Orian, who was, you know, who was given man of the match, um, the the Colo Colo goalkeeper, um, yeah, he nearly saved this penalty. Um, I think having dived the right way, I think he will be disappointed he didn't get a stronger hand to it and it went under him. But yeah, in it, it, it was Corinthians who took the lead that way and then Colo Colo had to survive a spell, a key spell really after that because it could have gone terribly wrong, I think, if Corinthians had scored another straight after because at that point the crowd was really bouncing in the Corinthians arena. And... What I was impressed with was how Colo Colo then did actually regroup um, and they started to get Valdivia on the ball and st- and they also stepped up, you know, 10-20 yards up the pitch and, and, and they got themselves back in the game that way and, and started trying to play on the front foot and they were soon rewarded as well, um, Valdivia controlling things in midfield. Um, spraying passes out wide to the really um, cr- you know crucial part of the this uh, formation, the three-five-two that Colo Colo uh, have played in these two matches against Corinthians, where the fullbacks have been so key to getting them up the pitch, and uh, and yeah, and both fullbacks were actually involved in 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 the goal. It was a great cross from Perez um, onto the head of Barrios. Um, Lucas Barrios, another ex Palmeiras player, and uh, and and that brought Colo Colo level at one one, which then meant, of course, with Colo Colo having won the first game one nil, but uh, Corinthians then needed two because of the the away goal, and uh, and yeah, at the second half, Corinthians had you know two shots on target, I think, within the first two minutes of the of the of the restart. Uh, Orian pulled off an amazing save with his legs. At first, it looks like it just hit him, but I saw an angle from behind the goal, and he, and he does actually move his legs to, to stop it. So it was great reactions with his legs to keep that out. I felt that that the Corinthians centre forward, Hodger, is it pronounced, Austin, um, should have should have seen red for an elbow on uh, Barroso, uh, the Colo Colo defender, and he got away with it, and then. From the very next bit of action, uh, Roger scored, of course, as these things always go in uh, in, in football. Uh, and shortly after that, there was another elbow from a Corinthians player, this time on uh, Lucas Barrios. And that arguably also should have been punished with a red card. Um, so at that point, Corinthians are riding their luck with the... Uh, with the with the referee, in my opinion, um, although they did have a couple of goals disallowed, but both of those decisions were correct. 
and it was back to the wall stuff from Colo Colo. Uh, uh, there was what seven minutes of injury time, I think it was, in the end, and and within and in that injury time, Corinthians had a player did finally have a player sent off, but it was probably you know, it's barely deserved really that one. Uh, I think the Colo Colo players did quite well to get him sent off. Um, and that, I think, really helped Stephen over the line. A couple of uh, substitutions as well with that 10, 10, 15 minutes to go also helped. It just gave, gave them some extra legs. Uh, Esteban uh, Paredes, who put in an amazing shift for a 38-year-old, but, um, but yeah, he was tiring with about 10 minutes to go, and the, and the fresh legs of, of uh, Pavez really helped Colo-Colo uh, to get this game um, won or get this tie one, should I say. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, final word sh- should probably go for, to Valdivia um, uh, well, and the goalkeeper, Orian, who, who both put in, you know, amazing performances for Colo Colo on the night and uh, and, uh, and for what was an historic win for for Colo Colo and, and for Chilean football, which has, uh, which has suffered greatly in this competition in recent years, as long-term listeners to this show will know. Adam, for me, what was most impressive about Colo-Cola's performance was the fact that in so many situations like that, we've seen Chilean teams fold in recent Libertadores. They went behind because of an unforced error early, as you rightly said. Just not a smart play to stick out the hand there. Easy penalty call. But then Colo-Cola did so well after that to fight back. And then even when they were 2-1 down, you were doubting them. You said you didn't think that they were going to be able to hold on, but they did. And they had a massive stretch at right around the 80th minute where for about four straight minutes they hung on to the ball down in front of Corinthians' corner flag. That was absolutely massive for them. That was was just after I had said, I don't see them holding out. And then, yeah, like you say, they just had a five-minute spell where – you know, they, they got it up the other end of the pitch and, and they relieved the pressure finally for, for a few minutes because it, it did feel like it was becoming too much. And, uh, and yeah, and the substitutions as well, like I mentioned, Pavez coming on also, also held massively up. I think as well, for me, you know, we've seen teams counter-attacking, obviously a lot in the Libertadores, away ties are always very difficult. But for me, the interesting thing that, that Colo Colo did very well was to keep the ball on the floor, to pass it. You know, we've seen Nacional obsession with just pace and just players who can get the ball the other end as quickly as possible. But obviously with that, the, the risk is that it comes back as quickly as it, as it leaves. So the fact that Colo Colo kept the ball on the ground, kept the passes going. I mean, we'll talk about Palmeiras and they got the job done, but in a very different way. I was very impressed with how controlled Colo Colo were. We were talking as well and saying, oh, there's no pace up front for Colo Colo. Like, what, what are they going to do? And what they did was get it into feet, get it down and keep the, the ball and relieve some pressure. So I think as, as important as the hard work and the defensive grit was there for Colo Colo, just being smart and being composed in a difficult situation and putting the ball foot on the ball. And obviously Valdivia was a big part of that. But I think, as you mentioned, the strikers as well, always working, but always offering as well. And it, and it meant that they could get the ball forward, but then keep it forward, not just get it coming straight back at them. Yeah, totally. And Valdivia is so good at just picking the ball up, taking one or two touches, using his body to get in front of, of his marker. And, you know, nine times out of ten, you either spray a pass out wide to one of the wing backs, or he's or he just get, um, you know, clattered from behind 
and uh, win win a free kick to to relieve some more pressure. Uh, I think that's what was really impressive about Valdivia's uh, game on that night. Um, yeah, so next up for for Colo Colo is uh, is Palmeiras, and we and we come on to them in a bit. There is another game on Wednesday night that we do have to quickly cover. Um, Austin Cruzeiro lost at home to Flamengo, but it didn't matter because they had a 2-0 lead from the first leg anyway. And it seems like that disappointing display from the Rio Giants, Flamengo, proved costly in the end. Yeah, if Flamengo had played a better first leg, I think the second leg would have looked a lot differently. Cruzeiro were not nearly as clinical as they should have been in this match. Hernan Barcos, who was brought in during the, the June-ish transfer window for Cruzeiro, had a chance to just put this tie to bed early and somehow managed to miss the miss the target. I thought Diego Alves in goal for Flamengo was probably my man of the match here. He kept them in it late, especially after they had scored that goal. Uh, Flamengo put some pressure on. This was one of their more positive performances as of late. But again, the fact that they were so poor in the first leg at home is what eventually did them in. I was intrigued by the decision to start Vicino up top as a false nine. I didn't think that really worked out for Flamengo. Their goal was kind of a, a set PC routine where the ball went across the face of goal a couple of times and then Leo Duarte pushed it home. Cruzeiro have to be better going forward. I think they kind of were victim of the scoreline here. They didn't want to open themselves up too much because they did have that two goal advantage on aggregate. But had they opened themselves up a bit more, I think they would have been able to score and just finish this off. Uh, Marlos Moreno was positive for Flamengo tonight. It, it took him a while to get stuck in at Flamengo, uh, but he's starting to play well for them. And that's good to see as they head down the stretch in the Copa do Brasil and in the Brasileira down. Quickly on the two biggest teams in Brazil, Flamengo and Corinthians, both came into this year with the Libertadores as one of their strong targets. Obviously, both are now out of the Libertadores. Flamengo sit in third in the domestic table. Corinthians are long adrift of them down in eighth, about 16 points back of, of current leader Sao Paulo. So the Brasile down is gone for Corinthians. The Libertadores is gone for Corinthians. Flamengo are still very much in the Brasile down fight. But those two teams actually face off in the semifinals of the Copa do Brasil, of course, the Brazilian Domestic Cup. And that tie is going to be fascinating because there, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on both of those clubs to win that semifinal tie and then go on and win that cup as a chance to salvage the season. Because if Flamengo come away from this season with no significant titles, I think that's going to be a disappointment for them. Corinthians, I it would still be a disappointment. Obviously, it would be a bit more understandable given all that they have lost. But that's going to be a really big semifinal tie in the Copa do Brasil and should be a fun one if if not a little bit testy and, and intriguing between those two. Yeah, the Hernan Barcos miss was uh, was incredible. Uh, really nice play there from uh, Jovinho and Diaz Gareta. Nice little one-two and then squared across and inside the six-yard box, open goal, just terrible. But, uh, yeah, you know, I think um, not a massive surprise. Everything was done and dusted from the first leg in a lot of ways. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, good, good for Cruzeiro. OK, let's move on to the highest scoring match of the week. And that was uh, Libertad 2, Boca 4, a comfortable 6-2 win for Boca on aggregate. Um, although after a few minutes of this game, it looked like they might be in for a for a more difficult night than many had anticipated. 
but two quick goals around the 20th minute mark seems to sort of put to bed any hopes that the Paraguayans had of turning this around. No, Austin? Yeah, I think it's actually really interesting because, as you said, the scoreline suggests that this was very comfortable for Boca. And in a lot of ways, it was. But outside of a three-minute stretch around the 20th minute in the first half until they really put this to bed with about 15 minutes to play, I thought Libertad acquitted themselves very well. And they could have had an away goal at the end of the first leg, if you remember. And then here, Cardozo scored early, and it was like, okay, they're going to make a game of this. They've got a chance. But Boca were clinical in that three-minute stretch. Dario Benedetto finally back for Boca, and he had a huge impact on this match. Assists on both of the goals. One for Pavone, one for Zarate. If he continues to play at this level and can stay healthy, he just might be the difference maker for Boca between making the semifinals and actually winning the Libertadores this year. That's how good he was during that stretch. Tavez even got a goal for Boca down the stretch. That's that's kind of how one-sided this was at the end. And then Cardona finished it off with a penalty. But I think Libertad deserves some credit for how they approached this tie. They weren't as bad as 6-2 suggests to them. They could have had a goal, as I said, in the first leg. And things could have gone a bit differently for them had they not kind of defended so poorly during that three-minute stretch. Benedetto deserves a lot of credit. And now, Adam, this sets up a really fascinating quarterfinal tie between two of the most talented teams in this Libertadores. And I think your and I's pick to win the Libertadores. I backed Cruzeiro at the start. You backed Boca Juniors. Now here they meet in the quarterfinals. How do you see that quarterfinal tie going? Yeah, well, I've, I've seen more of Cruzeiro in, in this year's competition because they were in the same group as Universidad de Chile. And I've seen kind of saw kind of uh, the worst and the best of them, really, in those two games against uh, Universidad de Chile, where they were pretty average at the at their Stadio Nacional here in here in Santiago, and then they beat little 7-0 at home. Was it 7-0? I think it was 7. Uh, yeah, 7. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they looked like, you know, possible Libertadores winners that, that, that night. And then again, I think, in a, in a match against uh, Racing the, the following week, they, uh, they, were, they impressed again. Uh, and then they got this amazing 2-0 win away to Flamengo. And, and at that point, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely, you know, a serious contender. But um, I, I find it interesting that they that they did lose this home leg against Flamengo. You know, I haven't seen the game, but certainly looking at the, the brief highlights, you know, may, maybe they got a little bit nervous in, in front of their home fans trying to get this one over the line. Um and, and as for Boca Juniors, I, th- I think they are possibly more clinical than, than Cruzeiro are and perhaps a little bit mentally stronger as well. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to stick with, with the Argentines to, to, win, to win the quarterfinal coming up. I think for me, the biggest difference between Boca and Cruzeiro right now is the fact that Boca have an attacker who can be clinical and can complement the rest of the attacking players. And Benedetto, Cruzeiro don't have that player. That player was supposed to be Fredge. He hurt himself at the start of the year and, and doesn't look like he'll return this year. Hernan Barcos hasn't been that since he returned. And I think that might just make the difference over these two legs. But for me, this is still a really talented Cruzeiro side. And Simon, I could still see this go either way. Yeah, you know, I think with uh, Boca Juniors, you know, they brought on Edwin Cardona and Carlos Tevez. And obviously it's not... Carlos Tevez of you know Juventus of Manchester City, but that's not a bad couple of options to come off the bench. 
I think um, with this, looking at the Libertad game as well, I think they were looking very sloppy at times in defence. I think Libertad had two five-minute spells where they conceded two goals in each of them. Um, and that kind of killed the game. But before that, there were chances for Cardoso. There were other chances. There were you know, defensive lapses. So as, as impressive as this Boca Juniors team is, I, you know, I do think that the quality, some of the, the creativity, the passing, the movement that Cruzeiro have could cut them open. So it's going to be an interesting game. I think there could be goals in it because I think Boca are very, very clinical, as you mentioned. Um, Benedetto's little scoop over two players' heads and straight from goal was lovely. Zarate, obviously, again, mixed spells in Europe, but very, very good at this level. Uh, and good options come off the bench. I mean, Edwin Cardona will be the star man for almost every other team in South America. So having that option off the bench um, and, you know, he showed his quality with a little Penenka dink penalty down the middle. You know, I think there's there's ways Boca can switch it up. I just do worry that they may concede a couple of silly goals because their defence was a bit lapsed this week against Libertad. They almost made a game of it um, because of their lack of concentration. Yeah, but you would expect them to be more focused if uh, if they're facing a team like Cruzeiro, I think. Yeah, you would think so. You would think so. And, and I have had some impressive displays from Boca Juniors and obviously the players are there. You know, they've got some good protection in front as well from, from uh, our man Wilma Barrios and all these you know, they've, they've got a good side, a good balanced side. And I do think they have a lot of quality in attack. So I think it could be a game with a few goals, uh, but we'll have to see what happens. Indeed, indeed. Let's, uh, let's move on to the final match we have to review. And, uh, and that's Palmeiras 0, Cerro Porteño 1. Uh, but Palmeiras advanced 2-1 on Uh Strange game. This a bit like the Cruzeiro-Flamengo one, where you know, the, it was an away win in in. in in both the legs, something we, I don't think very few, well, can't imagine anybody predicted going into the tie. And yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a bizarre match in general, really. Um, a criminal foul from Felipe Melo early on, saw Palmeiras down to 10 men. Uh, and then at the other end of the match, in injury time, there was some quite ridiculous behaviour from uh, Deverson. Um, which saw them down to, to to nine men, and even two ball boys got sent off in in injury time from Palmeiras, um, which was just yeah, like I say, bizarre scenes really. Um, but yeah, Sarah Bordenio dominated possession in the game. Uh, they found one goal through what many people say was the best player on the pitch, Aza uh, Mendia. Um, who got a bit lucky with a cross that swerved like two a ways. A bit lucky? A bit lucky. He got very lucky. Uh, it swerved two ways, bamboozling the Palmeiras goalkeeper. Uh, it was uh, it was a great effort, Austin. You know what I mean? But yeah, the team with uh, 56% pass accuracy on home soil <laughs> somehow managed to battle their way through and... Uh, and, and claim the 2-1 win on aggregate. Um, I'm actually going to come to Simon first on this one. Let Austin wait a bit. How, how did you see it, Simon? Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't very good. I mean, you know, lots of respect to Cerro Porteño. Um, I think they did rely a little bit too much on Turin's penalty box, uh, you know, presence. And I think they did try to hit him a little bit too often. As you mentioned, the, the young fullback. Very, very impressive. No, I didn't say his name, but <laughs> uh, very, very impressive this way. Again, he's made a few of our team of the week. Um, yeah, it wasn't very good. I think in terms of the red card, it wasn't the worst red card you'll ever see. 
But for me, it was like a cowardly red card. The ball was there, 50-50. He got a toe on it and then lifted his leg up and kind of turned his back to the to the tackle and just, just really dangerous. Um, and I think while it wasn't an obvious going straight in to break the player's legs, it was the kind of 50-50 that a certain type of player will make. And again, it's Felipe Melo. <laughs> you know, when he gets sent off, not many people have sympathy because it's Felipe Melo and he does this kind of stuff. But yeah, it was for me, it was just a, just a really... A really dangerous, a really, you know, careless uh, red card. And just stupid, stupid. First couple of minutes, get yourself sent off. Uh, but there was a lot of time wasting from Palmeiras. The goalkeeper as well had the ball in his hands, kind of bumped into the opposition attacker and then threw himself on the ground looking for a, for a red card. And ooh, and even even Miguel Borja was, uh, was doing some tactics. The goalkeeper had the ball looking to take a goal kick. Borja has a quick look to the referee, sees he's got his back turned and kicks the ball away and then gets a little touch and goes down looking for a card as well. Oh, it was horrible in a lot of ways. And, you know, for me, while we had so much praise for the way Colo Colo were very professional, I think Palmeiras had a lot of, a lot of hard work, a lot of, uh, a lot of energy, enthusiasm, but perhaps a little lack of control. And maybe that's what happens when you're defending a lead at home uh, and under difficult circumstances down to 10 men. Maybe you get a bit carried away, but uh, this wasn't the polished, uh, careful performance we saw from Colo Colo. So, you know, they got the job done. Fair play. The, there was a lot of embarrassing moments. I don't think this makes a... Uh, if they'd gone to win the Libertadores, they might gloss over this in the DVD highlights of the tournament. Uh, wasn't very pretty, but got the job done, I suppose. OK, then, Austin. We'll let you have a go now. Palmeiras got it done. Um, I think this match was obviously changed by the Felipe Melo challenge that was rightly, rightfully given a red card early on. Um, you know, that completely changes the tactics for Palmeiras. The pass accuracy stats are poor. The possession stats are poor. But they had a couple of chances on the counterattack in this first half to finish this match off. I don't think they were as negative as the stats maybe make it out to be. They got very negative once Aras Mendia's goal went in. Um, then I think Palmeiras went into straight survival mode. But even then, I thought they held the ball fairly well once it got into added time. Uh, a quick word for Rodrigo Rojas, the captain and midfielder for Cerro Porteño, who was actually stretched off in an ambulance in this match. Uh, he had a clash of heads with Miguel Borja and was bleeding pretty profusely. Um, the reports from the Cerro Porteño camp is that he'll be all right, that he'll be able to make a full recovery. So that's very positive to see. Very scary scenes. And that actually led there to being 11 minutes of added time at the end of the 90, uh, which saw two players sent off, one for each side, Davidson and Cassidus. Uh, and it saw Palmeiras hanging on with nine men down this stretch. This, as Simon said, is not the performance that they'll be proud of, uh, but it's a performance that advanced them on in the Libertadores on a night when things could have gone horribly wrong based on how they started. Uh, Palmeiras Colo Colo will be very interesting because, as you said, it's the return of Jorge Valdivia. He was asked after the Colo Colo Corinthians match, hey, if you play Palmeiras and you score, will you celebrate? Of course, Valdivia will celebrate. He's Jorge Valdivia. I think there will be a lot of praise for him from Palmeiras, particularly you know when he's announced in the starting 11 for Colo Colo. I think he'll get a big round of applause. Uh, but I don't think he's going to hold anything back going against his former club. And I don't think any Palmeiras fan would expect him to. Palmeiras will be favored in that tie. Uh, I think the away leg will, will obviously be critical again at the start. 
other than a mishit cross that, as Adam said, bamboozled the goalkeeper. Palmeiras haven't conceded in 10 matches now, uh, which is the discipline and the structure that Luis Felipe Scolari has brought to them as manager. That's a huge positive from where they were under Hajar Machado defensively. They conceded a lot of goals, and that has not been the case under Philly Pound. That's what I think should give Palmeiras confidence going forward in this competition, confidence going forward in the Brasilia Down, where they sit fourth, and confidence going forward in the Copa do Brasil, where they also sit in the semifinals and will face Cruzeiro. So by no means an impressive performance, by no means a positive performance, but I think Palmeiras deserve at least a little bit of credit for getting this thing over the line on a night when it could have gone horribly wrong for them. No credit from me. <laughs> they won. I, I, I guess so. My my counter to the criticism is once they've gone a man down five minutes in and it, and all the tactics get thrown out. I think it would have been suicidal for Palmeiras to attempt to have, have played a possession based game. I think they would have opened themselves up needlessly. I, I just don't understand what they were supposed to do after five minutes a man down. Hey, man, I'm not going to criticize, but it's so interesting to hear Austin talk about phrasing time-wasting after six months of complaining about time-wasting. And I get it. I get it completely. I, I was all in favor of Colo Colo doing it, and I was just, it was disgusting to see the Argentine minnows do it against Atletico Nacional. But it's so interesting how your principles can, can kind of be shifted depending on uh, who's playing. And, yeah, let me be abundantly clear. I completely understand time-wasting, and I completely understand why Corinthians do it, but the fact that it's Corinthians kind of rubs me the wrong way. Look, I get why it's done, and I'll, I'll never, I don't know, disagree with somebody doing it. I just think it's very frustrating to watch, and I completely agree that Palmeiras were probably incredibly frustrating to watch last night from a neutral perspective. Time-wasting down the stretch, the goalkeeper flopping all around, Borja pretending to get hit. It was ridiculous, and, and it was borderline insane, but it got it over the line, and that's kind of what they needed last night. Um, but yes, Simon, your criticism is, is very founded. Had this been another team doing this, I would have been ridiculously frustrated. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, you know, that's Libertadores. You know, teams will do everything they have to to get the win, and while that can sometimes affect the product as a, as a TV spectacle... If you get into the spirit of things, then you can kind of find some joy and some pleasure in teams doing everything to get the result. You know, I, you know, I kind of respect that as well. Yeah, but my issue with that is that ultimately it ends up harming South American football in general. Because so by playing the way Palmeiras did serves nothing from a football point of view for 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 any of those players going forward in their careers, really. Um, on how to manage a game because you know doing it that way in my opinion you know basically putting everybody behind the ball lumping the ball upfield where you can um, you know they had as I mentioned in the intro to this game you know 56% pass accuracy you know there, there was very little intelligence in their play it, it, it was just sort of a backs to the wall okay it's you know, us against the world mentality when really, you know, okay, you're down to 10 men, but you're also playing a team with probably less than half the budget that you have. You know, you do have the players to play a, a, a better style of football, maybe we can put it, but obviously, you know, opinions are split on, on what's on what's better in start, stylistic-wise. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, 
for me, if, if, if you play like that, what ends up happening is, and Scolari, I'm surprised, maybe hasn't learned his lessons from, from previous or Brazilian football, hasn't learned its lessons, because what ends up happening is, you know, you, you lose 7-1 in a semi-final on home soil, or you uh, or you go out in the in the Copa America to to a fairly average Peru side. Ultimately, in the end, um, it, it won't serve for anything. So you know, from what I saw of Palmeiras last night, um, I'm quite confident they won't win the competition now. And and when when they the football, which is disappointing for me because I really enjoyed watching them in the group stage. Um, I, I thought they were. I thought they were one of the best sides to watch in the competition, um, and especially their performance away to Boca Juniors was very impressive. Um, but uh, you know, under Scolari, I, I get Austin's point that obviously seems like he shored up the defence. It's very impressive statistics defensive wise. But I think the, the first team which had the quality. Uh, to really play against them, I, I think they're going to come unstuck. But um, whether that team is Colo Colo or not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure. But it's certainly going to be a tie, which is uh, which is very intriguing to say the least. Yeah, just very quickly, and this is not necessarily a, a direct response to what you said there, Adam. But this week in South America was obviously a lot went on, and. and a lot of it was negative towards South American football. You had the administrative errors. You had the general incompetence of federations and of clubs. You had this spectacle that Palmeiras put on, which, again, was by no means attractive football, even if it got it over the line. And I think you saw a lot of criticism of South American football this week. Um, this idea that that South American football is broken, uh, some even going as far to say that you know South American football is broken beyond repair, um, Look, South American football is not what it once was. It's not what it was in the 70s or the 80s. You know, of that, there's no doubt. But I think this idea that South American football is broken beyond repair, I think it just ignores the, the beauty and the drama that is inherently present in how South American football is played right now. Look, it's undoubtedly fair to say that South American football is messy, but sometimes messy is good. Like Lionel Messi is really good, but also messy football is good. What drew me personally to South American football in the first place and what keeps me coming back is the fact that literally any time a South American football match is played, you know one thing for certain, and that's that the match is going to start at some point, sometimes late, with 22 players and the score nil-nil. From there, anything, and, and literally anything, can happen. And that's what's so appealing about it to me, is it's real and it's raw. Uh, look, it's not the cleanest product. It's not the highest level. I don't think anybody will try to argue differently. But expecting South American football to be clean would be like expecting Santa Fe to play exciting football. It's not going to happen. Uh, but there's beauty and there's entertainment to be found in it. And for me, the joy of watching a youngster grow while playing in the Libertadores and playing domestically, uh, the passion present from South American fans that you just it all too often is so lacking in the European club game now. Even just the sheer delirium of watching a team like Palmeiras or Colo Colo try to hang on by any means necessary down the stretch Though it's often pretty frustrating, to me, it's all really beautiful. And, and so if you're the person who's making the argument that South American football is broken, I'd tell you to just enjoy it for what it is rather than, than what it's not. Um, don't try to make it something that it isn't. Can it be improved? Absolutely. And, and I think everybody on this podcast will agree with that. 
But even if it's not improved and, and then, you know, in this day and age, that's looking increasingly more likely. There's always going to be beauty in the chaos that is South American football. And I think we should appreciate that a bit more than we are currently. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, I love the, I love the Copa Libertadores. I, I care so much more about the Copa Libertadores and the Champions League. The Champions League is better. But, uh, you know, there's so much, so much to enjoy as you said perfectly summarized i went to a south american i went to call with Lewis game this week and it was incredible it was disappointing you know the, my the seat was shaking the entire game there were away fans making noise you know, it was it was incredible and uh you know so so much so exciting and the fact that you know teams will push the boundaries of the game to get the result and just put everything into it and be so committed. You know, I think the teams that roll over and lay down in the group stage of the Copa Libertadores and, and lose 4-0 without really ever imposing themselves and really ever making the game, taking the opposition out of their comfort zone. You know, I think there's a lot of, lot of pride and a lot of credit to be taken from that. And uh, obviously, I agree with Adam. Brazilian teams perhaps should play better, given all the resources they have and the great players that they have. But, uh, you know, there's, there's so much to, to enjoy. And the fact that we see Venezuelan teams and Bolivian teams, you know, with a, you know, a budget smaller than the average big Brazilian side star man's wages, getting results and being surprising us and doing interesting things. You know, there's so much to enjoy. And yeah, Copa Libertadores is amazing. It's mad. People, things... Stupid things happen, amazing things happen, crazy things happen, but that's all part of the passion. And, and we can tidy things up here and there, but we shouldn't lose sight of all those great things that we can enjoy every week. Every week there's a whole new narrative, every week there's a whole new story, a new star, a new kid who's just beaten seven players. Yeah, love it, love the Libertadores. Yeah, I've, I've, I, you know, we were discussing pre-pod, weren't we, that we probably have to do a podcast at some point looking at some of these issues in the South American game. Not necessarily from a just a critical point of view, maybe a constructive criticism uh, that we have for for the game here, and 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 even coming up with some ideas of, of how it can be improved um, going forward. Because personally, from my point of view, any kind of harsh criticism that comes from me is is done out of love for South American football. Ultimately, I, I want to see South American football succeed. And I, I was very frustrated at a lot of the performances during the last World Cup, as well as you know my country here, Chile, not qualifying, um, and also by you know a lot of the football I, I do see in in the in the Premier competition on on the continent, and and I do take all your points, all all the positive points, and I completely agree with them, uh, but. Ultimately, you know, you've always got to try to strive to it, to improve things and, and, and not just sweep any issues under the carpet. So, so yeah, uh, and, and there's a balance to be had as well because uh, one thing I, I've always feared in trying to clean up South America, if you do try to clean up some elements of South American football, and I'll go into this on another pod uh, another day, but... It's certainly in the stands. If you try and clean that up too much in the stands, then um, you know you might you might lose a lot of the atmosphere and uh, and one of the key selling points of South American football to begin with. So, yeah, there, there is a there is a balance to be had, and uh, exactly how how we go about that, um, 
how Commonwealth will go about that is, is something we can discuss on another pod. I think let's wrap this pod up here. For, um, I'll come back to you, Austin, to find out uh, where people can find you on Twitter and if you've got anything to plug. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. Plenty of Libertadores coverage. The Brasile Down is starting to heat up. As Simon mentioned earlier, uh, I've moved back home, which means these podcasts could feature expert analysis from my parents who are being forced to watch South American football that without me, they would have no care about. So we'll see if those tidbits make their way to future podcasts. Um, But a lot of exciting times in South American football coming up. I will be in uh, both New York City and Washington, D.C. in the coming days covering Brazil's friendlies here against the United States and noted football power El Salvador coming up. So be sure to follow me on Twitter and the World Football Index for plenty of coverage there. We've got a set of a couple of scouting spotlight podcasts that have just come out. Angelo Arauz, the Chilean who's just moved to Corinthians, and Jefferson Soteldo. I believe that podcast should be out by the time this podcast is out. So check those out. There's a couple more coming as well on a couple of Argentine players. So always be sure to pay attention to the Scouting Spotlight podcast. Those are quite fun and I think quite useful. And there'll be a couple more of those coming in in the coming weeks as well. So a lot going on uh, for South American football right now. And it's an exciting time. Are your parents naturally entertaining, Austin? Because I'm starting to see the dollar signs here of a spin-off South American football show with your folks. Absolutely. Yeah, they'd make that work. Yeah, the dollars would just come flooding in there. I think we got to do it. Okay, we, we, we'll discuss that post-pod then. Uh, Simon, where can people find you? Yeah, so on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. There's a kid screaming next to me and a dog barking. I've been all over the place this, this podcast. I've been uh, trying to avoid some drilling in my house. I let the dogs go mad. So I was lying on a slide and a big, massive Alsatian like, mounted me and I got bitten by an insect. So the things I do to talk South American football. Uh, so, so on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. Uh, yeah, Columbia squad's out. Lots of new names, lots of interesting players, some less interesting players. So there's some coverage and all that stuff. And also we've been doing some stuff on radio. So follow us. We'll point you in direction of some UK radio stuff. We're trying to spread the good word of South American football uh, to Europe and, and give them some positive stories about why we love this competition. Adam, what about you? Twitter? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at AdamBrandon84. Uh, last Friday, we're recording this pod on a Friday, so last Friday, um, uh, I, I actually attended the first ever South American Women's Football Players Forum. Uh, which took place here in Santiago. It was a very interesting event, fascinating uh, topics came up, and um, and it's great to see how women's football in South America is uh, is, is is triumphing really against adversity um, over 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 the past few years. You can you can read my write up of, of of that forum. It's a report from it um, on worldfootballindex.com women's football in South America triumphs against adversity it's called Uh, so check that out Um, and also yeah as Austin mentioned check out the scouting spotlight pods um, I did with uh, with Tom and Austin on uh, Angelo Arreos and and, uh, Jefferson Seldero forgot his name there for a minute (laughs) yeah that's 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 everything from me um all what's left to say really is a huge thanks to Simon and Austin for joining me to discuss uh, what has been a very controversial and dramatic week. 
of uh, Copa Libertadores action, uh, but also very entertaining, of course. Um, and a huge thanks to you guys and girls for tuning in to this podcast, and it's goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>